Now we'll turn again, please, to Daniel and chapter 9. Daniel, chapter 9. We read this morning the supplicatory prayer of Daniel and we'll read to refresh our memories at verse 17. Now, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications, and cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. Cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. To the New Testament and the Gospel of Luke again, and this time in chapter 13. Luke 13 and verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, And verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. A final reading for the moment, and that's in Psalm number 78. Psalm 78, verse 54, the faithfulness of God to the nation is being rehearsed in this psalm. Verse 54 of Psalm 78, and he brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to this mountain which his right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen also before them, and divided them an inheritance by line, and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. Yet... They tempted and provoked the Most High God, and kept not his testimonies, but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places, and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men, 
and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. We trust God will bless again the reading of his word. For a few minutes, I just want to think about the setting of this, uh, and particularly then I want to speak to you just a little about the sanctuary. You will recall from this morning, perhaps, that as we looked at Daniel chapter 9, we saw the prayer of that faithful man. He had three things particularly upon his heart. Thy city, thy sanctuary, and thy people. We've seen from uh, Luke's gospel that the city is going to be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And here in Luke chapter 13, the sanctuary, your house, he calls it, the sanctuary is going to be left unto you desolate. And ye shall not see me, ye shall not comprehend me, you won't recognize who I am until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So you can see deliverance for the city and deliverance for the sanctuary are going to come at the same time when the Lord appears in glory to deliver his people Israel from tribulation and to establish his kingdom. The sanctuary was something very precious to God. You'll find it first mentioned in Exodus chapter uh, 15. And that's that song of Moses that was sung once the people of God had crossed the Red Sea. And in that particular song you will see how that they recognize God's purpose in bringing his people out of Egyptian bondage was to bring them in to something infinitely better. It was to bring them into his sanctuary. And the parallels are very, very clear to see if you're prepared to read them and study them. Salvation of the soul for the sinner prefigured in the Passover of Exodus 12. The blood of the Lamb applied by faith. The destroyer, not able to reach the one who was protected by the blood. Because God said, I will hover over you. And great principles of the truth of salvation are seen in that pass overnight. And it's the great picture of the sinner who by faith in the Lord Jesus knows the joy of sins forgiven, of deliverance from divine punishment. But then, of course, once that evening was passed, and the light of a new day dawned, and the, uh, the houses of the children of Israel, the firstborn, were preserved. They were feeding upon the roast lamb. There was a recognition in picture of the substitutionary death of Christ. Christ died for me. And that's what delivers me from the penalty of my sins. But once that new day dawned, where were they? They were still in Egypt. Pharaoh was still their master. They were still in the land of bondage. Redemption was not yet complete. Oh, they've been delivered from under divine judgment. But now they have to be delivered from the thraldom of Pharaoh as a master. 
And so, in his mighty power, God brought his people out from Egypt through the Red Sea. And in figure, as they followed Moses through the Red Sea, they were baptized unto Moses in the sea and in the cloud, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 10. And what is being prefigured there, as the Red Sea allowed them through and then swallowed up the pursuing armies of Pharaoh, what is being prefigured there is not Christ's death for me, but it's my death with Christ. And my brother, my sister, younger ones particularly, learn this. You will go no further in your experience as a worshiper or one who can testify for Christ until you learn this lesson well. Self was crucified with Christ. It's not enough to rejoice in the fact that Christ has died for me. If that was all, then the Roman epistle would finish round about chapter 5. Get into chapter 6, because that's the chapter that teaches us that I died with Christ. The old life has gone. And then they learned that the purpose of this was not so that they could go and dwell in a wilderness, but so that God could bring them in to his sanctuary. God always brings people out to bring them into something better. Ah, but through their unbelief, through their wicked behavior, that divine desire that his people be brought into his sanctuary was constantly being thwarted. How gracious God is that ever since his fellowship with man, his creature, was ruined in the Garden of Eden by Adam's sin, that God has pursued a path where in righteousness he could restore that fellowship. Man doesn't seek it. Man after the flesh doesn't want it. Man after the flesh will always hide as Adam did. But God wants the fellowship of his creatures. And thus it was, just under a year after they came into the wilderness, God said in Exodus 25, let them, let them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell with them. How kind of God to do that. That sanctuary, of course, was the tabernacle. The tabernacle later would give way to the temple. But instead of the people recognizing that God was among them of a truth, to quote 1 Corinthians 14, instead of God's ancient people realizing that, they looked at the temple as a totem. They lapsed into mere religion. And however, however regretfully, the glory of God in Ezekiel it tells us how the glory of God left the house. There was a time, of course, here when the Lord Jesus was on earth, when truly the glory of God was in the house again. They didn't recognize him. He was just in the outskirts of it. And that's why he now speaks to the nation, and he says, Behold, your house. That's all it is. Because they've rejected the one who would have made it a sanctuary. It was just a house. It was your house. And it's left unto you desolate. 
And the Lord said, you won't see me. You won't have any true comprehension as to who I am until the time comes that ye shall say, in fulfillment of Psalm 118, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 is the last of the Messianic Psalms. And this verse comes about the fourth from the end of that very psalm. Psalms 113 through 118 were the psalms that were sung at the time of Passover. You can see how it all fits in. That at the conclusion of those Hallel psalms, there was the thought that a day would come when a people would say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But the nation won't say that of Christ. Until the day that he comes to deliver them from all the desperate conditions of the end of the tribulation period. And before, before they would say this and sing this song, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They must first recognize, as they will with divine illumination, that the man who's just come in power and great glory and destroyed their enemies with the brightness of his coming, they'll suddenly realize I don't know whether they will actually see the marks in his hands and his feet. But one thing's for sure. Zechariah says, they will look upon him whom they pierced. And they'll mourn for him as a father mourns for his only son. And then Isaiah 53 will be fulfilled. And a nation will say, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement with a view to our peace was upon him. With his stripe we are healed. Oh, blessed is him that comes in the name of the Lord. What a glorious restoration there will be for that disobedient nation in a day to come. How tragic for God that the sanctuary is left desolate. And Daniel prayed, Oh, that the sanctuary be restored. He was thinking particularly, of course, of the fact that Solomon's temple had been destroyed nearly 70 years before. That the sanctuary, which had been such a holy place, had been trodden down by Gentile feet and torn apart by Gentile hands. And yet the thing is, there was nothing there for God anyway. It was because, as Psalm 78 says, God had brought them to the very border of his sanctuary, to this mountain, and they were deceitful. They were like a deceitful bow. They just turned back. They weren't interested. So much for the history of the nation. So much for the fulfillment of Daniel's prayer as he prayed for the restoration of the sanctuary. It will come in a future day. And when the Lord returns to the earth and he establishes his millennial kingdom, the world will be wrecked by all the effects of warfare and divine judgment, except those days be shortened, not even the elect should be saved. Uh, the, it's virtually impossible to sustain life when the Lord returns. But in that great moment of regeneration, as Matthew speaks of it in chapter 19, the Lord Jesus will speak, and the earth will be repaired in a glorious way, as Isaiah chapter 65 makes clear. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. That's not the same, by the way, as Revelation 21. You understand that? There's a new heavens and a new earth, 
in Isaiah 65, that's at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. There's a new heavens and a new earth after the millennium has finished and to prepare things for the eternal day of God, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, and that new heavens and new earth is not a repaired thing, it's a completely new thing, made out of the purged elements, I trust, that God had created in Genesis chapter 1. So Isaiah 65, a repaired. The, the, the word for new there, check it out. Don't just take my word for it. Look at your Bible helps, confirm this. It's the word translated repair in Isaiah chapter 61. The earth is going to be restored to a degree for the millennial reign of Christ. And one of the things he will do, according to Zechariah chapter 6, he will call into being. He will build the temple. He will build, says Zechariah, the temple of the Lord. There will be a new sanctuary. Zion, Psalm 48, beautiful for situation. The city of the great king. The city will be a temple. The temple will be a city. And the man who will be enthroned will be both a priest and a king. He will bring peace between them both, says Zechariah. What a glorious day. And a nation restored. And now fitted to be that kingdom of priests which God always had intended them to be. Will minister in that earthly temple city. The chapters from 40 onwards of the book of Ezekiel will tell you all about that temple and its service. But in the meantime, God deprived by the intransigence and the wickedness of his earthly people, the temple ransacked, your house left desolate. Whilst God has been robbed of the fellowship of his earthly people, we've been hearing how that he seeks worshippers today. And in a few minutes, beloved brethren and sisters, I want just to ask, are you a stranger to the sanctuary? Do you know anything about the sanctuary? Do you know about the sanctuary of old? If I were to ask you about the sanctuary uh, of Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 2, would you be able to tell me about it? See, Hebrews 9 and verse 2 tells us that, that the sanctuary was really not so much that holiest of all, the very innermost compartment of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with the mercy seat was kept. Hebrews 9 2 tells us that the sanctuary was the, was the holy place. So that as you stood and looked at the tabernacle, it, it had its outer courtyard with the brazen altar and with the laver. But then within there was that tented structure. It had two compartments. The first was the holy place. And it was entered into by priests. You had to be a priest to go in. But First Peter 2 tells you that you're a priest. Not after the order of Aaron. There's only two priesthoods known to God. And we're not talking about the false idolatrous priesthoods. There's only two in the Bible. There's an Aaronic priesthood, which was temporary and earthly, and it was finished with at Calvary. And there's a Melchizedek priesthood, which is both a holy priesthood and a royal priesthood. And Peter shows how that we have a priestly ministry along those lines. 
It's characterized by those things. A holy priesthood whereby we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Do you know about it, my brother, my sister? If you don't know about it, you certainly don't engage in it. You can't. This priesthood, this priestly position into which we have been brought, every blood-bought saint of God, a priest before God, not only with the privilege but with the responsibility of offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. You say, I've tried to worship, brother, and I don't know where it comes from. Let me show you in just a few minutes, shall I? Come back in your Bible to the book of Exodus chapter 30. Because in Exodus chapter 30, at the end of the chapter, God is going to give the prescription we might almost call it the recipe for what was figurative of priestly worship. See, the priests themselves didn't worship. Not the Old Testament ones. The most godly of priests who ministered in the Levitical order had no idea what it was all about. Brethren have stood at this desk for many, many years past, I would imagine, and from time to time taken the saints to the book of Leviticus to the principal offerings, to the priesthood, to things like the Day of Atonement, and all these rituals that went on in the life of Israel. And they'll have brought lovely truth out of them concerning Christ and his work. The godliest of Israel's priests never knew anything about that. Nothing. How could they? It was ritual to them. It was all about slavishly following the exact prescription of actions that they were given. I wonder what they made of this. Look at Exodus chapter 30. Now, just before we read the verses, visualize the sanctuary. Can you do that? I'm not being provocative. I'm just trying to encourage you. If you don't know these things, go away and search them. Look them out. So that as you went through the, the door to the holy place. Now, it wasn't a door like a door here. It was a hanging, very beautiful hanging, very heavy hanging. So that as the priest went, went through that hanging, the, uh, the difference in surroundings was startling, absolutely startling. In fact, the only thing common to both locations from he came from the outside to the inside, the only thing common was the ground on which he stood. The sand of the desert or the stony part of the desert, whatever it was. There was no flooring in the tabernacle. But immediately he went in, the hush, the stillness, that heavy drape would have, would have cut out immediately the noise of all that was going on in the outer court. And as he went in, the, uh, instead of the, the smell of the blood and the brazen altar, there's now a beautiful fragrance in, in the holy place. It's not coming 
particularly from the lampstand on his left-hand side, that's just softly glowing in the wicks that are in the olive oil that is being burned. And, of course, that lampstand wasn't to illuminate the sanctuary particularly. The Bible says, intriguingly, that its purpose was to throw light over against itself. You, you dear sisters who are homemakers, men who are homemakers, husbands and wives who are homemakers, you, you might say, well, put a lamp in that corner. That'll be nice. That'll just shed a soft glow over there. I don't think you've ever bought a lamp to illuminate itself. But that's what that light was for in the tabernacle. Because, you see, it's a picture of the Word of God, how that in the power of the Spirit of God, light is thrown over against itself. So the, the oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit, and, and the Spirit of God sheds light upon the revealed Word of God. On the right here, there's a, there's a table. It's not very big. It's the table of showbread. Quite literally, it's the bread of the faces. And there are 12 loaves upon it, equal in size and shape, and their purpose is to present to God the faces of those who would never be in the sanctuary themselves. But each of those 12 tribes equally represented before the face of God. What a lovely truth that has for us, doesn't it? That as we go into that sanctuary, as we become acquainted with it, we're accepted in the presence of God. I think it would teach me that when I was saved by divine grace, and those of my family and those of the friends of the family rejoiced that I got saved by the grace of God, I think it's wonderful that in heaven there's the very man there who died to save my soul. And it's as though he stood before the face of his father. And he said, Father, here's another who's the fruit of my toil. We're not just generically saved. He saves individuals and he loves individuals and he presents individuals before the face of God. How could I possibly entertain thoughts that somehow I am better than any other child of God if I appreciate the truth of the table of showbread? Presented before the divine face, every one of us equally. And the lovely thing is that that table, made as it was of wood overlaid with gold, figurative of the humanity of Christ now glorified. You know there's three items of furniture out of the seven that are all made like that. Wood overlaid with gold. The incorruptible humanity of Christ as he is now glorified. It's speaking about ministries that could only be performed by a man who's now in heaven. And is now glorified. And significantly, every one of those three items of furniture, the table, the golden altar, and the ark, they all have crowns. They all have crowns. Not just to show us that he's a man glorified, but the crowns had a purpose. It was security. The crown around the ark would make sure the mercy seat would never slip. What a lovely truth of the assurance of salvation. The ark around the table of showbread, the, the crown around the table of showbread, make sure those loaves would never, never fall. Eternally accepted before the face of God. The crown around the altar of incense. It speaks not so much now of assurance. It speaks not so much of our acceptance, 
but it's speaking about our access. Our access unto God, not only in prayer and supplication through Christ, but the presentation of our worship. That little neglected golden altar is where it's all happening. That's where this incense that God prescribes in Exodus 30 and tells his people, you are to have nothing like it for yourself at all. This is mine. I'll give you the prescription. I'll tell you how to mix it. You present it. Look at it in Exodus 30. Verse 34. The Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, Stacti, Onica, and Galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense, of each shall there be a like weight, and thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary, tempered together. That means salted. That's the fifth ingredient. Pure and holy. And thou shalt beat some of it very small, and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee. It shall be unto you most holy. And as for the perfume which thou shalt make, ye shall not make to yourselves according to the composition thereof. It shall be unto thee holy for the Lord. Whosoever shall make like unto that to smell thereto shall even be cut off from his people. For nearly five minutes, four or five ingredients. See, when you just look and do a little bit of study as to these things, what you will find about these ingredients, the first of them, the stack tea. It's a resin. And uh, it has a meaning to its name. Because it exudes from the tree so readily, its name means to drop without being forced. To drop without being forced. And the very fact that we've got these four plus the salt, it would get the inquiring mind thinking along the lines of the gospel records, wouldn't it? And when I think of, of Christ as the one who, who dropped without being forced, I'm thinking of his own words in John's gospel. The scripture says that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, yes. But in John chapter 16, the Lord Jesus said, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and I go unto the Father. Praise God, he dropped without being forced. He came because he wanted to come. Primarily to fulfill the will of the Father. But he came to seek and to save that which was lost, the nation of Israel. And he came to restore creation, which was under the curse as a result of Adam's sin. And thank God, he came to bring salvation to Gentile sinners like you and me. Thank God for one who dropped without being forced. The onica, it comes from a root meaning, the roar of a lion. It's a little shell. Did you ever, as kids at the beach, put a shell to your ear, hear the ocean, that kind of thing? Well, they say with the onica that you would hear like the roar of a lion. Well, that just makes you think of Matthew's gospel, doesn't it? The kingly gospel. And we think of the one whose destiny is the throne. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, Psalm number two. But it was going to be 
by way of the cross. Galbanum simply means vigor. You're in the groove now, so you're thinking about it, and you're thinking of Mark's gospel. Immediately, straightway, the shortest gospel, the busiest one, in one sense the fullest one, Mark's gospel, the perfect servant of Jehovah, never a moment wasted. Frankincense, white, fragrant, pure. We think of the lovely man of Luke's gospel. Wrapped in linen at the beginning of his life. Wrapped in linen at the end of his life. Never a priest on earth, but certainly priestly in character. What are we doing? We're thinking of Christ. Our hearts are dwelling upon Christ. We're allowing the Spirit of God to bring to our remembrance things concerning Christ. And what does the scripture say? Of each shall there be a like weight. And as we compound these lovely features of our Lord Jesus Christ, we make sure that as it's tempered together, it's with the salt, pure and holy. Why the salt? Very quickly. Salt is a preservative, but not in Leviticus chapter 2, the humanity of Christ in the meal offering. No preservative needed there, none here. Salt is that which Job tells us you need if there's to be any flavor in the white of an egg. You didn't know that, did you? But it's amazing the things that are in the Bible. Check it out. That's what Job tells us. That's always my excuse in the morning as well. Salt on the white of an egg. There's nothing bland about the Lord Jesus. The young Sunday school boy was reputed to have said, salt is what spoils the potatoes when you don't put it in. You see, there's the need to bring out flavor, but that can't be true of Christ. But if you read Ezra chapter 4, those people who were writing that lying letter to the king to get the work on the temple stopped, they said the reason we're reporting this to you, O king, is because we're worried your revenues will be hurt. And if your revenues are hurt, then ours will be hurt because we, the marginal reading is, we're salted with the salt of the king's palace. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, do you pick up a salary? Comes from the word salt. People were paid in salt. Roman soldiers were often paid with salt. That's where the word salary comes from. Uh, and in Ezra 4, we're salted with the salt of the king's palace. It means we're dependent on you, O king. We depend upon you. And if your revenues are hurt, then we are hurt. Now, there's a picture of salt that fits Leviticus 2 beautifully. Because if there's one thing specially that brought pleasure and delight to the heart of God was that there was a man here truly dependent upon him. What does thy God require of thee? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. A dependent man. That's why Luke, seven times over, shows us the Savior praying. Prayer isn't a necessity for fallen man. Prayer is the native atmosphere of man. It should be. And that's why we find the Lord Jesus praying. Committing to his God the things he'd said and done in his name that day. Learning from him the things he would say and do the day following. The dependent man. And as we look at this lovely picture in Exodus 30, 
You take all that you know and the Spirit would teach you of Christ in the Gospels, Christ in his ministry, Christ in his person, Christ in his work, and see the features of that lovely dependent man. And as they're presented in priestly worship upon the golden altar, there's that unique fragrance that God has prescribed. He said, I'll give you the recipe. You don't have to make it up. It's not soulish. It's not going to come from you. Worship can't come in that sense from the heart of a fallen man. But God said, I've constituted you priests now. I've given you access into my presence. Bring to me as priests that which will delight my heart. Isn't it wonderful that God who knows everything there is to know about Christ delights in us speaking to him about him. Each of us has got our own professional expertise, probably. Certainly the adults. I suppose if I presumed to speak of medical things to my beloved brother or dentistry to brother Joe, uh, they're very gracious men. They'd probably stand there and listen, but they'd be thinking, this boy would be better off if he just shut his mouth. (laughs) They say, it's better off for folks to think you're a fool than you open your mouth and prove it. You see, if somebody speaks to us about our expertise and they clearly don't know much about it, it's irritating, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful that God is never irritated? Not for one second is he irritated when we speak to him about his beloved son. Is this within your reach, my young brethren? Is this within your reach, young sisters, though your voice will not be heard when the saints are gathered together? That when we do come, it's to combine those things, to quote Psalm 45, which we read this morning, the things I have made touching the King. Fill your mind and fill your hearts with Christ. And the Spirit of God will produce the worship. You don't have to produce it. But you have to present it. And as your heart indicts that good matter, I'll tell you this, we won't have many men on a Lord's Day morning who haven't got something precious to give on behalf of the assembled company because the heart that's indicting the good matter of Christ will soon bubble over with the whole thing. It's not mysterious. It's just very spiritual. Fill your mind and heart with Christ. And so against the day that the earthly sanctuary is restored when Christ returns to establish his millennial kingdom, against that day, God has a sanctuary amongst his believing people. And he said, I want that sanctuary permeated with the fragrance of this unique compounded fragrance that I will give you the recipe of. He said, I want my people to be occupied with Christ. I'm sorry I've gone over the time, but we trust you'll forgive that.